Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're a therapist of any kind listening today, have you ever found yourself wondering why your patient's issue is not resolving or why it keeps coming back? If you're someone who helps people achieve their health, fitness, or performance goals, have you ever struggled with their pain getting in the way of success or wondered why they keep reaching plateaus they can't overcome? Or maybe if you're in either of these worlds, you view the other world as uncomfortable territory, a space where your abilities end and your need to trust is challenged. Reconditioning is the place where these worlds intersect, the place where each world becomes tangible and familiar, where misunderstanding and fear of the wrong move are replaced with confidence and creativity. The reconditioning process is powerful. It's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. In the first week of September, ReconditioningHQ.com releases the R-Pro series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code RPRO2021 to get $50 off any one of our products and take advantage of our free 5 hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. I'm excited to have my friend Brad Thorpe and his company Isofit involved with the Leave Your Mark podcast. His mission is the same as mine, helping human beings live better lives. He doesn't want to see you let an injury force your retirement from the sport or activity you love. For decades, physiotherapists, athletic therapists, and chiropractors have recommended isometric strength training to help speed up rehabilitation from injury and included it in return to sport protocols. I know I use it often in my own reconditioning process. Whether you're goal is performance enhancement, injury prevention, or injury recovery, the all-new Isofit MSK takes athletes from the therapy room to the podium. To learn more, visit www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H-I-T-M-S-K.ca, and remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark. three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. I want to thank Greg Lawler and Matrix Fitness for being a long-standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Matrix is indeed leaving a mark on the fitness and performance industry today. In the last 20 years, Matrix has become a global brand that employs over 7,000 people worldwide and delivers over 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix has a wide range of programming solutions, and they are dedicated to creating deeper partnerships with their customers everywhere. Matrix has many ways of making a relationship work for you, the customer, and offers rental and various financial incentives to assist the financial constraints of adding premium equipment during this time of inconsistent revenue. For more information and free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. That's teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Richard Clark. Rich is an SNC coach and education professional from the United Kingdom. He has split his time between teaching in the university system, coaching athletes of all abilities, and completing a PhD focused on change of direction and agility. Rich is the lead SNC coach for Bristol Flyers basketball as part of the British Basketball League and has recently launched Strength Coach Curriculums, a brand focusing on high quality cohort based courses for sports performance professionals. He's married to his wife, Morgan, of seven years, and they have two sausage dogs and three chickens. I love it. I'm pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Rich. Thanks very much. Yeah, appreciate the intro. Very well done. Well, I, ha- I have to ask the chicken question because I have a few friends now that have been investing in chickens. It seems like it's the new fad. Why, why did you buy chickens? Um, oh, why? Because my wife told me, I'd, can we have some chickens? And I said, yeah, of course. Um, we, 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 you know, we live out in the middle of the countryside. You know, we're pretty, um, pretty country people. Um, you know, my wife spends most of her time with, with horses and is, and is asking me to buy goats and slowly build up a, a small holding. We don't have any of the space for that. Um, but, th- but three chickens was a compromise that I could make. So, uh, yeah, they, um, they don't keep us busy. But if you don't have that, I, I recommend it. I mean, just like huge personalities, um, great fun, relatively annoying because of just um, escaping and being mischievous. But yeah, they're a, they're a good addition to the family. Yeah, I've been told they make pretty good pets. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I usually start this podcast. It's a bit of a life journey podcast and then get into a little bit of uh, what makes you tick on on your work side. But um, I like to find out, you know, what instigated... Uh, where you went in your life. So you grow up where and and what are your big influencing factors in your in your early life? Yeah, so um, British from the UK. I grew up in a little village called East Harling in Norfolk, middle of nowhere, really kind of standard, kind of sleepy, um, sleepy area. Um, and why did I, you know, how have I ended up here? I, I guess I've asked myself that question a, a few times. I think it's probably the classic journey, sporty background, nearly didn't go to university as had was just didn't know what I really wanted to do uh, most people go kind of within the UK system that are interested in sport go straight into a sports science based undergrad degree and I wasn't interested in doing the run of the mill I'm um, not a follow the crowd kind of mm-hmm. person so I was like oh I don't I don't want to just go and just do a, a sports science program for whatever reason I, I didn't feel like that was going to be suitable for me um, but I found a strength and conditioning degree that was really kind of what I knew I was really passionate about was the physical performance side of it and yeah I joined what was I think the second strength and conditioning undergrad degree in the country at the time mm. that I had kind of thought out, oh, boom, that's it. That's exactly what I want to do. And yeah, ever since there, laser focus, that was always, always the path. And I uh, doubled down and cracked on with it. And one thing led to another, I suppose. And um, yeah, I'm in, a, I'm, in the, I'm in the position I am now. Well, like, um, you know, I, 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 I'm in Canada. Canada is probably, you know, 10 years behind the U.S. in terms of its influence in, in performance uh, training and strength conditioning. And, and I know the U.K. was probably a little bit behind that as well, having gone over there earlier in my career. Um, so what are you what and you mentioned, you know, one of the second university to have a program, et cetera. So 
where do you get the fact that you can actually do this from? Like who, who instigates that in your mind? What do you see that says that, that this is actually a profession you can do? Yeah. Great, great question. Um, I don't think there really was anybody. I think it, I think, you know, it's like, um, you know, Mike Ball's written about it, that the, the evolution of a strength coach and everybody goes through that standard interested in fitness, bodybuilding based mentality because that's where the information comes from powerlifting weightlifting etc you know we've now kind of got extensions of that and you know that was really something that I was interested in at the time that was the that was the focus and that was the passion and you know I'm very much a follow your interests and follow your follow your gut kind of person I suppose and I don't think I ever really did click that I can do this for a living aware of the Mm. personal training kind of realm, but actually I didn't think any further than that. It was just, this is what motivates me to get up and do things. You know, this is what I'm motivated to learn. And it was probably a year into the university system before I started thinking, Oh, these are the actual career options of this other than Mm. plastic, maybe own your own gym or be, you know, kind of work general public kind of private sector. Those were always on the cards, Mm. but actually anything that was outside of that, um, didn't really come onto my radar, but like, I think a lot of people at that age, it didn't matter, but that was what I really was interested in. That was what I wanted to do. And Mm. yeah, and things kind of naturally snowballed and led from there i suppose so where were your were your parents big instigators of academics and pushers or were they pullers or were they observers just kind of let you flow the way you wanted to flow yeah complete observers um my dad worked abroad pretty much all my life like back and forth between libya ukraine and all sorts of places so really it kind of let me choose whatever I want. Like, you know, my old man certainly had some, some influences and told me when I thought I was being stupid. Um, but my mum's side, definitely not either. I first person in the family to go to the university. I have an older brother. He didn't go until later on down the line. Um, and it was just one of them things where I had the academic capability to do it. And I wanted to get out of where I was living as well as follow this passion that I had for kind of physical development and yeah that was what I did so I kind of ended up going halfway across the country um 200 miles ish not very far for you guys in the state in the states is it but it's a long way here um um, and yeah and kind of started started from that way and I I guess to an extent made it up as I went along Mm. there's maybe a, a sensible way of reflecting on it what did your dad do that he was all over the place he was, um, or is still alive. Um, he is a fabrications engineer. Mm. So he builds, you know, creates build big old steel vessels and pipework systems and things like that. And he had a, had a business in the UK for many years, which went tits up eventually, um, started a business in Libya, pipework oil, Libya did that for a few years that went tits mm. up too. Um, and then started one in the Ukraine and lived in Kiev for five or six years um that went tits up too um and uh, and, he's, and he's now back here so yeah he was and I think that lots of the things that I have it, it pains me to say it sometimes that I think I I think I get from my dad just like a you know a real dogged focus on certain things and mm. um an all-in kind of never mind let's crack on kind of mm. mentality um which I think you get from I guess in, in his position of having multiple failed businesses, well, from success back down to the bottom to restart again and 
go to a new country. There's a lot of that I think I've taken from from him in that in that respect. Yeah, we'll unpack that a little bit more. So how how do you when you reflect on your relationship with your dad and looking back on, you know, obviously you have the eyes of a child where these businesses are failing and maybe what that's affecting you then, but how does that maybe affect your your intensity to sort of go beyond or not have so many concerns about, you know, what what the future holds for you is is that a factor? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think so because I think at the time I had I had no idea what was working and what wasn't working. You know, young young teenager, like no no insight into into that stuff. Other than mm-hmm. the fact that majority of the time he was away, so I became super independent. Um, and again, I think that's kind of a big part: independent thinking and just getting on with stuff without mm-hmm. um, without kind of too much support. Um, and I guess I maybe cottoned on to um, oh, he was here doing this thing, and then now all of a sudden he's here doing this thing, and then him and my mum eventually got divorced, and then you kind of just go. Mm-hmm what's going on here you know mm-hmm. um I, I think i maybe had some of those um considerations at some point but i don't really think other than maybe some of the implicit things that i think i picked up in terms of just like overcoming adversity and focus and mm-hmm. running with an idea um none of that i think is was an explicit like oh this is what this is what he's doing or this is what I should be doing or anything like that but I think I've maybe as you learn more about yourself as you get older you realize maybe how what I'm like in my 30s about actually mm, it's a bit like my dad um you know for, for better or for worse so um that's that's probably the the, the carryover I think to, to some of the things I end up doing so you've you discover this university program and you get into that sort of industry what is your first work coming out of it that uh like when do you have the uh oh yeah i can earn some money in this and maybe this is what i should do for my vocation Hmm. i I think i once i kind of got through that first year of university and i started maybe really thinking forwards in, in in more detail again me being kind of the way that i am recognized that that more professionalized strength and conditioning is a really legitimate career path and then from that point onwards it was very quickly two feet in let's go and let's get on with it there wasn't really too much kind of you know fluffing around so I then spent you know I'd been coaching for a couple of years anyway just not necessarily really thinking about what it would what it would lead to and I just kind of progressed through went straight down the internship route and the placement route um, got accredited with the UKCA while I was an undergrad student and actually, the first thing that was probably the really big springboard for me was I met a gentleman called Ed Archer, who's a long, long-term mentor of mine. And that was a situation where helping out with some coaching, swim club, actually, at, at that point in time, which we worked with together for, you know, for, for many, many years after that. And that was the first time where I had started thinking about commercially how that skill set can be used from a business um or just general kind of um non-elite sport route side of things and actually that was the first opportunity for me to go oh wow these are all of the different things that you can do with this with this skill set and very quickly moved into a, a kind of what was a full-time internship in professional rugby i did that at the same time as progressing onto a master's degree 
So did a master's degree in strength and conditioning as well. And combined those three things. And actually, I've never stopped combining those three things. Mm. The continuing to study post-grad at that time, doing some private um, kind of commercial-based base work and some different projects with Ed and, you know, on my own, and then having something which is a little bit more formalized in more of a sporting structure or a sporting organization, I suppose. You know, and that's now 2010, I think, some of 2011, right? yeah, 2011. And, you know, at that point it was, oh, there's these, there's these three kind of, I guess, points of a, points of a triangle. And actually I still haven't chosen between them. Um, <laughs> and I've just continued over the kind of the next, the next 10 years having, or at least trying to keep a hand in all of those areas, the, the academic world, the private business world, as well as actually trying to be involved with some clubs, organizations and, and kind of sporting systems. So I really like that. Actually, I'd like to unpack that a bit for the listener. Like, how do you find each one informs the latter? Like you, do you, you know, and keeps and kind of instigates whether it's change, innovation or thought in a different, in a different place when, when you have those three kind of spinning plates. I think there's definitely a huge amount to take from each of them. So there's things that, and I guess a little bit of a cliche, like the, the, the sporting environment, which is much more club, big group in a, in this bigger constrained structure that becomes so much more context, personal skills, communication between people. And you kind of pick that up. And it's interesting where, even those things, well, you know, those things of course occur in both of the other the other areas. But it's interesting how those how those things work in that sporting organization example, whereas they exist within the higher education world, but they just work slightly differently with what's important mm-hmm. and managerial structures and being much more formal with communication and language. And then you move to kind of the business side of things where you can shape that much more effectively with this is what I, this is my philosophy and how I want this training environment to, to look. And you have a little bit more freedom to, to do that with, with kind of less external influence. So it's certainly been interesting from us, from those kind of skill sets, thinking about how they apply to those different environments. The, the other side of it, which is something that I think I've has really been a big, benefit for me it's two parts actually is one seeing all of the different perspectives and I had lots of conversations with people who are being in pro sport you know the same sport for 10 years excellent at what they do and it becomes very easy to see things your way and mm, just yeah. go, mm, actually like it's, it's a little bit different than that because <laughs> you know I guess I've looked at things from a, a student a teacher a private coach a an employed coach within a club environment and then professional bodies been involved with the UKCA board a little bit and you look at it from all of these different directions and you start mm. going mm, okay it's not as simple as we as we maybe think it is and that allows you to appreciate that contextual um problem solving components to things where it's not that simple you know step back and maybe think about the bigger picture and actually start to to kind of go from there and the, the final point for that was you know that 
problem solving element where you know the the decision making you think about the classic thinking fast thinking versus thinking slow and the sporting environment is just a very very fast paced um much more intuitive decision making and in, in a lot of things that that happened and the higher education academic side of things is the opposite of that the, the polar opposite than that very slow you know if you want to do anything it takes you a very long time to be able to implement it and then the private side of things again somewhere in the middle where mm. you might have a little bit of some some of that thinking fast intuitive decision making but then things work and then you have to try to go back and think slow again and then pivot and change and i think that there's certainly those kind of areas of you know decision making perspective and contextual Mm. skill changes that i think have all influenced each other um i wouldn't change that combination of all three at all to, to be honest awesome. I, I like that that's a nice insight for the listener um which of the three just uh, out of out of interest do you feel most comfortable in um i think i've probably got two parts to the answer to that i feel most comfortable probably I would just say I feel most comfortable coaching just once you're actually with people and you're just doing stuff um, because of the creativity component to it, because of the problem solving interpersonal relationship component to it. Like that's, that's really what I kind of thrive off. But the reason why I hesitate to say that that's my answer is I've spent more time in terms of career path and actually what's paid the bills in that academic setting but i don't feel as comfortable there it just happens to be what i've spent more you know kind of uh just been bumbling along with it because you know i i got into that at, i guess suppose at the right time the rise of strength and conditioning degrees having an academic and a practical capability being able to do some teaching and i've kind of just stayed at least part-time within that system so i feel very comfortable in the respect that it's super easy bread and butter like it's you just get so used to this is the way the system works for, for good or for bad but i still go back to i just really like coaching i just really like working with people and that's when you settle into like this is all you know this is that's where your energy comes from in in mm. life so a little bit of a cop-out answer maybe that no i like it and in fact it, it kind of informs my next question which is you know we know as uh, performance professionals that you know you can't be comfortable all the time or you're not growing and you're you know that idea of overreaching so what is the natural instigator in you when you're in the comfortable space to say i can't settle for for what i'm doing right now i have to get better at this what instigates that in you i'm really driven by and I've only really actually in the last few years come to really realize this, but I'm really driven by innovation and creativity. I struggle, and struggle is the wrong word, I get frustrated in systems where there's no desire to change things. Mm. Not that you change things for the sake of it, but you identify a way to get better personally within a system, improve an external, whatever it might be like not pursuing that for me is just 
ridiculous. I just, I, I don't settle to, oh, this will do. Like, it will be, a, you know, I oh, will just, it will be okay. It's the way that it is. Like, I, I don't really think that that's the right mentality to it. And I think that, you know, the instigator is just that, that monkey in my head that says, there's definitely a better way to do this. Therefore, you, you should explore it. Like, you should do mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and that may be, between the lines feeds into you know my i guess frustrations with the, the the higher education system i suppose where like as i said it's really slow to make those changes which is where kind of that lack of comfort comes in in that environment but i think that's what it is of really enjoy problem solving and providing value you identify something that can improve you identify a way that you think you can improve it and being able to actually implement that to try and achieve an outcome like you know that's a big fuel for me and Mm -hmm. it's always frustrating when you don't even get to implement something and you know even i guess the the process of convincing other people and working with other people to do that and again that shared perspective as i as i mentioned earlier all feeds into the what's a really enjoyable process for me to try and optimize optimize systems and, and optimize outcomes that's really valuable. I'd love to uh, go deeper on that with you. Um, how have you brokered, like change is something people are, most people are averse to, especially significant change. So a lot of times when you're trying to create change, it has to be very incremental. It has to be tactical and it has to be nursed to a degree, you know, nudging people to move. And I, I found from my own experience in professional sport that Although you would think it was highly innovative, a lot of times it's very traditional and driven by sort of normative factors. And this is the way we've done it. But also taking risk has the, you know, well, if we fail, I get fired kind of side of things, et cetera. So how have you, what have been your strategies for noticing something you think needs to change, sort of nudging versus pushing and finding your space to create it? my strategy has been continually different partially because of environment differences how i think about going about those things in a private business setting mm-hmm. well one it's easy most of the times you might be the person that makes the decision from working with someone there's two of you it's easy to have a collaborative conversation and short term come to some kind of conclusion and then you know those other environments of bigger organizations where there's a lot more stakeholders and then the i guess the the academic higher education side of things where there's a million stakeholders and just brick walls in your in your way um yeah i i don't have a good answer to that because one i don't necessarily think of if I, that i've always been successful Two, I think where I have been successful, I've been very lucky with the team that I've been with and I've had the autonomy that, you know, they trust you as a problem solver to come up with Mm. ideas and solutions and you know what your restrictions are. And then you were, you know, so for example, this is my, my previous role. We had um, three people in our, in our strength and conditioning based, based department and you within your, 
you're within your restrictions and everybody knew what those restrictions were. So any idea that was outside of that, not going to happen, just take it off the table because it's going to take you too long to, and too much of a battle to try and change it. So anytime it was problem solving, it was, we know where the boundaries are and there was a shared understanding of we are trying to optimize this outcome. We're not trying to have an easy life. We're not trying to, um, you know, we're not trying to, um, do kind of anything else other than let's make this as good as we can physically make it. So that is easy when you have that and you're lucky enough to have that environment. It's super simple. And then there's been other environments where you haven't had that. You've had huge differences of opinion. You've had unclear barriers with what is and isn't capable things that are kind of written between the lines that you have to work out through comments. Um, and I think I've had environments where I've been successful and I've had environments where I haven't been successful. And, and then you have your own, your own time and your own kind of creative license with, you know, different projects to just be like, this is what I think. And I don't need to debate that with, with people. Um, and I would say like, I, by, by no means have I cracked it. Let's, let's be very clear. By no means have I cracked it. I think I've just slowly got better with it, enhanced by the fact that I've been in all of these different places hmm. um, or at least different kind of contexts to kind of go, mm, okay, this is the way I'm seeing it. This is how I'm going to go about approaching it. I've either got time or I don't have time to chip, or chip away at things and slowly mm -hmm. make, mm -hmm. slowly make change. Um, or I've got evidence or I don't have evidence. I've got um, team support and I know I've got team cohesion that you can be a little bit more bullish with things and start to, you know, really get the ball rolling. I think I've maybe just got better with identifying which one of those scenarios actually is before mm. going about it. Still doesn't necessarily mean it's been successful at the end, <laughs> but I've at least in re on reflection on, you know, on, on things, I've at least considered the right option before making the decision to go about it. And whatever happens after that happens and you think, mm -hmm. oh, okay, why, you know, why could we not get, get through in, in this particular, particular scenario? So. I love how the, those three pillars kind of inform you and continue to sort of uh, come into your thought process as we explore this too. So I know, you know, you and I encountered or I encountered you at an Altus event when you were teaching or talking about your, what has become a passion of yours uh, around change of direction and agility and, and sport performance that uh, maybe tell the listener, like, why has that become an area of keen interest to you uh, within the parameters of performance training in general? Yeah, I, I think that, that really comes from my desire to solve problems and provide value. The, the change of direction and agility area is arguably one of the most complex areas of broad team, you know, broad sports performance without kind of going into something that's maybe complex from a deep physiology perspective. Um, very movement orientated, very movement interested rather than, um, muscle physiology kind of side of things, much more of a zoomed out um, interdisciplinary view on things. And I think taking this interdisciplinary interest in everything, to be completely honest, <laughs> and and lack of lack of desire to entirely specialize and entirely kind of go this tiny little thing is what I'm going to focus on. I think that 
somewhere in my head, I decided that the change of direction and agility side of things was a way for me to specialize with, with, with my ears. Um, but you can't specialize without having an interdisciplinary broad knowledge base. And then that also fed the problem solving value side of things because no one else is really doing this really, really well. Why aren't they doing it really, really well? You know, where are the challenges? Let's kind of go into that. And that kind of combined with, you know, I, I played basketball as a kid, like really like a, a, a broad multi-directional interest and then going into coaching roles in different environments where not to say where I've always felt most comfortable, but where I've always seen the ability to provide the most unique value is out on pitch, seeing people move around. I always go with the classic and it's a bit of a, um, it's a little bit poking the bear saying, you know, strength is quite easy in terms of our relatively strict technical models i use that very loosely with this is how this is why we have a squat that looks something within these parameters and we do this to cause this adaptation on the body this is how the adaptation works and we have a progressive overload system to try and do that um mm -hmm. nobody shoot me because i know it's, more, it's a bit more complicated than that but you know those are the, the those are the kind of the first principles of it and then suddenly you go oh now all of a sudden you're on field and there aren't these really strict rules is what, or there's less strict rules with what should and shouldn't happen. Progressive overload isn't, doesn't work the same. It's much more nonlinear than that. And your ability to pick up what's happening and what needs to change becomes much more advanced and much more complex. And as soon as you present something like that to me, I'm like, I want to get good at that. Like that's really where I want to focus because you think I don't see people doing that. Well, I can provide lots of value here. And I can also, you know, scratch this, I guess, personal itch of all of these different mm -hmm. different things that motivate me to to want to get good at it. So that's kind of where that's where that's come from. Well, I, I like that uh, a lot because I think when you look at the way you've informed your practice, it's almost kind of parallel to how one would inform sort of the idea of agility in the sense that, to your point, it's not one thing, it's many things. And you've got the environmental constraints, the constraints of whether you're dealing with a ball at your feet or a ball at your hands, what you react to or don't react to, what strengths you do have and weaknesses you don't have or vice versa. And so I, I don't usually get into all the deep technical, but I like, I like understanding people's viewpoint of and how they've come to those things within the, the technical. So how do you, how have you sort of chewed on this, this monumental task in essence? And, and to some degree, how has your, you know, three pillar kind of life in, a, in, a, in essence informed your evaluation of agility in some sense or change of direction? <laughs> Yeah, great, great question. Um, all boils down to me to first principles. And what we see, I, I think it looks very complex on the surface because it's high speed and it's variable outcomes. But when you actually boil it down to biomechanically, these are some of our I'll use the term rules, which that's maybe the wrong way to describe it. You can say attractors, however you kind of what um, um, philosophy you have with thinking about that stuff. Biomechanically, these are some of the things that we have to have. Physiologically, these are some of the 
limitations or constraints of the of the of the system and then you zoom out from that and then you then go wider and the environment demands these things and this is how much time is available and i think that i try and be quite systems based and strategic with it where you just go you take each individual part and understand it which i think is where i can kind of get my desire to just look at and understand lots of different things and then once you put things back together the classic you know reverse engineering things and then when you put things back together you then start to find where there's conflict and you start to find okay those two things don't go together effectively therefore that's a challenge point where there's probably going to be optimized or suboptimized performance or there's going to be injury risk and i think that that's maybe how i've gone about it of the really the basics of physics and anatomy as the, the as the foundation of course and then starting to go a little bit broader to athletes constraints how might those what you expect to see from a textbook perspective how might that need to change and then wider than that and then now what's the environment that they're all actually working in how much time do they have what speed are they moving at what's the task that they're trying to do and i think you kind of take that incremental step to be able to really start to problem solve put it back together and identify here are the challenge points here is mm-hmm. where we need to spend much more time or here is where mine or anybody else's or the field's understanding just hasn't supported effectively yet and and i think again that's linking back to kind of those different environments that i've i've been in you can't do that without a good academic understanding because of the fact you need to try and pull in some perceptual cognitive expertise some you know some biomechanical um 3d motion capture work to influence how you understand things um and then some classic kind of newtonian um kind of general physics components and i think you need to be able to look to the literature and cuz cuz again your eyes can lie to you we need to see what we've measured take that and then pull it back in and then think okay cool that's what that's got for me but in practice this is actually some of the things that you that you see and then trying to put that into a broader team sport environment i, I tend to um default back to team sports but to any kind of i guess dynamic multi-directional environment and you know that again becomes that problem solving process to be able to do that where different perspectives different areas of information to take from or areas of knowledge to take information from to put that all into the melting pot to start going okay this is where i think we i think we are or this is where i think we need to we need to be so th- th- there's definitely parallels between those those areas of the change direction and agility where i've just kind of continually gone deeper and deeper into versus also the varied working environments and those two are probably just you know the more i say it out loud it's like it's the same thing in different um mm-hmm. in different parts of my life i suppose that's cool i'm interested actually if you've ever encountered in the world of change of direction and agility um sort of a parallel to this story i'm going to tell but i i was at a presentation uh, probably about five six years ago uh, greg rose who i don't know if you ever heard of greg but he runs the titleist performance institute big in golf but does a lot of stuff around speed training and things like that and they 
Titleist group that did a lot of research. And one of the things that they found around early childhood development and these developmental windows around speed, they kind of looked at, you know, when you look at an athlete that's very successful later on, they kind of divided them into, I believe it was diesels, uh, sports cars, jets and rockets and you fundamentally if you're a diesel at 21 you can't make a diesel a rocket it's just impossible it doesn't matter what drills you do you haven't got the fundamental foundation and it's no, there's no plyometric drill etc that's going to make you get that and you have to accept these windows of opportunity and he goes on in the presentation to talk about you know i think it's uh, three to five years old there's a certain window and then there's another window depending on female male to jump on somewhere in the range of 10 to 12, 14, et cetera. Um, I'm just wondering if, you know, in your, the stuff you've done, if you've recognized that when you want to actually set, you've got a 21 year old soccer player in front of you and you want to improve their ability to be agile and, and to, and move and, and change directions. Do you think that there are those developmental windows that effectively, if you haven't gotten into that when you were younger, you're probably not going to be a great um, multi-directional athlete, no matter what kind of work you do at that point. Quick break here, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. I've often been asked, how do I do what you do? What books or courses should I take? And for a long time, I had no real answer to that question. Delivering the concepts and practices we now call reconditioning was this compilation of so many ideas, concepts, methods, and strategies. But seven years ago, Jamie and I set out to answer that very question by creating one systematic process that would help you bring it all together and supercharge the skills and systems you already know. You see, reconditioning is not about excluding anything. No, it's about being inclusive, holistic, proactive, and curious. It's about having an operating system that grows with you and supports you in your human performance practice. We want you to be the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with so you can determine your value and explore the possibilities of success. For more information about becoming a reconditioning professional today, head over to www.reconditioninghq.com and download the free video explaining our powerful five R's practice for improving mobility. A new era of performance training is upon us. Maximize your isometric endurance strength and functional performance with the all-new Isofit MSK. No matter what your sport, Isofit will help best prepare your body to tolerate the forces associated with it. This not only reduces your chances of sustaining career-limiting injury, it will also enhance your ability to perform at your highest level. I really like what Brad Thorpe and Isofit are doing, and I encourage you to learn more about their mission by visiting www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H, msk.ca, so isofitmsk.ca today. And remember to use the discount code, leave your mark, three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. Matrix Fitness is about performance innovation, and I'm proud to have them with me on the Leave Your Mark podcast. They recently named my good friend and awesome performance coach, Mark Fitzgerald, as their head of performance team, which is a bold statement for anyone who wants to know they're working with the best. Matrix has all kinds of interesting lines of equipment. The Matrix Glute Trainer addresses the discomfort, inefficiency, and danger of working with loaded barbell during hip thrusts. The Matrix Glute Trainer accommodates resistant bands and weight resistance and is customizable to different body types and sizes endorsed by many and comes at a cost below others on the market the matrix 
S-Drive is a sprint performance treadmill that supports sprint training, resisted sled pulls, and pushes all on the frame of a standard treadmill. The 7 feet by 3 foot footprint of the S-Drive is non-motorized and is perfect for coaches who do not have access to a track or want to provide coaching in real time with the athlete. The non-motorized feature and flexibility in a simple machine keeps benefits high and investment low. For more information or a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Um... The short answer to that is, I don't know. Um, the, the, the slightly more, I guess, in terms of where my, mind's, where my mind is going with it is, you know, I guess the first thing is whether somebody can or can't, everybody can get better at stuff. Like, mm. can you, com- you're not going to completely transform the type of athlete you are. And whether that is a Windows or trainability component, whether that is just a genetic ceiling component um or whether almost i I sometimes wonder whether that is almost somewhat self-limiting so the first thing whenever i I hear things like that i naturally from the the academic size of me side of me goes "Mm, okay is there really evidence that definitely suggests that that's the case like it, it does make a little bit of sense i think with the developmental process there's you know there's this kind of neurotyping concept that's um kind of been around a little bit more recently and you do get variations in people for sure without a shadow of a doubt where they come from genetic developmental process and what they were exposed to um or even just long term where if an athlete is only let's say they go through the developmental process and even if you optimally expose them to all of those windows of trainability and you try and make somebody really well-rounded how much will those different things detrain if you then suddenly specialize and you know you you become a diesel a diesel midfielder in in soccer where you you know you you don't sprint necessarily that much but in terms of playing style not necessarily position and yeah at what point does the the cap that exists on somebody's performance capability at what point does that come in and mm-hmm. why does it come in i certainly don't know the answer to that but i'm thinking about that in terms of the agility side of things from I guess it's the affordances and individual constraints where if somebody doesn't have something, they don't have the physical capability to do it. Let's say they're slow from a linear sprinting perspective that will change the way they move in competition and that will change the decisions that they make in competition. You can do all the speed work in the world. How much will you change those decisions if at the same time you're doing that speed work that's still playing the game in the same kind of the same kind of way can you make a bigger impact if you if somebody completely comes out of their day-to-day system of play and this is what i do and this is how i make decisions and this is my strategy for things and then you upgrade and you change their physiology and they then go back into it to almost relearn like maybe you can you can do that there's a long-winded say i don't know but it gives me it takes me down to some different thought paths um uh, whenever i hear windows of trainability i always get hesitant my understanding of the youth side of things is that um some of those are a little bit debunked 
I don't necessarily think that that's completely out of the window because I think it does make a lot of logical sense in terms mm -hmm. of you know when the body is neurally developing the most, what they what what it actually kind of gets exposed and challenged by. Um, but as, I guess as a as a classic critical thinker, I think mm, I don't think it's necessarily that simple, but it's probably a an interaction of lots of different components mm -hmm. that does ultimately change the type of athlete that you have in front of you mm -hmm. and especially if you get them when you're when they're an adult are you going to make are you going to transform their um you know Stu mcmillan talks about this as you know it's very pertinent from an athletics perspective you know making somebody strength their super strength versus building up and developing their weakness and i think in team sports you're it's less easy or less sensible to really focus on somebody's strength becoming a super strength because it's such an unpredictable chaotic environment for them to be in they need to be rounded and capable of dealing with other things so you know lifting people's weaknesses i think still becomes a still becomes a focus especially once it's multi-directional I really like your response to that. It's one of the reasons why I asked the question because they look back at your, you know, those three pillars that you kind of lean on and, you know, having that sort of critical thinking approach and sort of questioning why or what for and, and not jumping into the pool, so to speak, but being, you know, thoughtful about where you would go. I really like that. And, and what I want to play off of that too is, how have how have you informed going back to that change piece that we talked about before and you know nudging etc how have you um sort of brokered that conversation with an athlete who you know can be better um and is maybe leaning on their strength but if they improve this weakness over here they're going to be a better player but they're also afraid of it or they're they, they don't believe what you're telling them is 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 actually doable what how, what have you used as strategies to either prove that or or challenge them to to move forward yeah it's, it's a really it's a really tough a really tough situation where I think the first thing is get them to see it video and give them a really clear example. Cause I think a lot of the times players and athletes do things and they don't really know that they do it. It's just this, um, it just what happens. Like even where players might not really understand their own playing style, they just go into autopilot when this is what I do. Do they realize mm. that, um, they are they much less frequently step or cut off their right foot versus their left. Sometimes they might know, sometimes they might not know. So I think part of it is, firstly, if you're going to try and change your weakness, make sure you're going to start messing around with the right thing, and that mm. it's you know it's the right thing to try and attack. And then after that, in terms of getting athlete buy-in, my experience is that if athletes understand the gap that it can fill, and you show them evidence as to why filling that gap can have a positive impact on performance outcomes, I think you can get buy-in quite quickly. You do get some skeptics who, and I guess it all depends on the, you know, I think that stage actually isn't the, isn't the challenge getting them to see it and getting them to identify that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can see how I do that is probably relatively easy with video with kind of um, technical coach support in terms of supporting that decision the, the challenging part becomes 
getting them to be motivated to engage in what might be an uncomfortable, difficult training process because of the fact that they can't turn up in the gym and maybe do these five exercises that they like and that they feel confident with. I'm going to deliberately make you do something which you're not very good at. And they're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that for me then just becomes good classic coaching, positive reinforcement, getting the challenge right and making the task really, really clear where they know they're getting it right or wrong. You know, they don't want to have you stood there saying, that's not, that's not right. No, 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 do it this way. This is what I meant. And, and, and kind of, you know, filling their head with stuff. And then you've got to think through your path to try and change something much earlier, or at least think through more steps in that path before you start implementing something and have obviously a, an option A, an option B, and an option C. Because I think that if you've identified an athlete's got a weakness in something and they go, oh, okay, I see that. Then you say, do this to try and make it better. And you fluff that coaching process and you make them feel a bit stupid and you make them feel like they don't understand that they're not capable. You've taken a step forwards and then you've taken two steps backwards Mm. because now they're like, I'm really bad at that stuff. I definitely don't want to do it. I don't get it. This is stupid and you've kind of created a problem for yourself. So getting them to recognize the issue, I think is easy. And then I think you've got to really sensibly think, how do I integrate this into a training process? How do I make a first step? You know, don't take them fully out of their comfort zone and plop them in something that they get really anxious about, especially if they've been an athlete in a system for a long time. And, you know, they've maybe got, there's a social status component, component to it and all sorts of things that start to start to lead in but i think you just need to be very strategic and very sensible with how far forward you try and step mm-hmm. as you try and move them down that way rather than a big pull out and i think if you can do that they recognize the problem they have an initial step to try and improve it they feel confident doing what it is that you think is the first step that's going to going to help and then you keep the confidence level and the comfort level as high as you can and you could debate that in terms of how much you take them out of their comfort zone but i think if you want buy-in i think that's definitely a um a component to it i guess classic self-determination theory where you know you want them to feel like they've got some competence within reason in what they're in what they're doing but you also want to try and challenge them to really push them forwards and give them a little bit of autonomy because then they see this is the gap i'm trying to fill and how they kind of put that put that together i'm wondering i don't know if if you have any examples of this but um the other elephant in the room obviously for an athlete is the coach and there's this um there's the self-identification i'm the uh slow-footed midfield who who plays this way and this is my strength and then there's the external identification of the coach he's the slow midfielder who only can do this and we lean on him for that so when you've taken an athlete in your career and actually changed something to the degree that they are better at how have you made that convincing expose for the coach that maybe the coach takes risks to let them play in a situation that they may have identified was not their strength before. Yeah. I think it, it has to start with the coach. So rather than it being, Oh, as an SNC, I've seen somebody do this. And I think it's, I guess there's classic things where non-negotiables 
bread and butter things that you you are always going to try and try and focus on single leg stability front or plane control and some kind of performance aspects but i think when you start relating if you're going to relate to the athlete this is how this physically focused work is going to impact technical tactical outcomes i think that you should have that conversation with the coach before you should have it with the athlete because mm. again do you are you trying to achieve something which maybe your limited understanding of the sport as whether you think it's limited or not you're missing a point somewhere and actually it's not a, as much of a barrier as you think it is that's one kind of i guess potential hurdle and then the other one then is a little bit more that even if you think it's a problem and you try and put something in place and you try and improve it whether that change is what the coach wants time to be spent on you know good idea versus how the coach wants things to to happen so i think that you start with the coach and you start with a shared conversation of this is what i see in this athlete and this individual i see somebody really classically um change of direction related dominantly capable of turning one way not the other um you know especially anything with a hard braking component to 90 degrees or more and you identify that that's a problem. It's not easy to pick up in a really high-speed dynamic environment. The chances are the coach hasn't picked it up because they're thinking macro, they're thinking you know big squad um, kind of technical tactical outcomes. So you identify that you think that that occurs. And if the co- normally if or I've certainly found in the past that if you've identified that that's an issue you know you're onto something if the coach supports it because of different reasons where they go mm. oh actually maybe that's why this happens and they've not made that physical technical tactical link but i think that that's the first conversation you have before you go to the athlete before you start planning how you're going to try and try and fix it to make sure that your time is spent wisely and that as a team you know if, if if a coach sees you doing something which is maybe a bit of a funky exercise this is the other thing they've probably been a coach for a long time they probably know they have an impression in their head of this is what good snc looks like and you do something which is a little bit outside the box and left field and that's it, it's almost softening that process as well where you go okay this is what i'm trying to get this person or this group really good at and you know they then go in okay i understand why that's there and then everybody's a little bit more cohesive i think that answers your question yes it does huge i'm going to use that as my segue to your i don't know if you ever listen to my podcast but i do this thing with this book called the day you were born it's basically your uh, astrological and numerological you know who you are so to speak so you're january 30th right correct yeah so you're an aquarius three so your purpose is to take that inner voice that says you are special and have a calling and unite it with your earthly voice in order to manifest a dream. Many a man has found the acquisition of wealth only a change, not an end, of miseries. Lucius Annius Seneca, Roman author. Aquarius threes are born with a great deal of strength and a strong sense of purpose. Their job is to activate their strength through learning to believe in themselves and discover their spiritual path that will bring them happiness and reward beyond earth 
earthly success. Although they may feel like orphans, the roots of Aquarius trees are anchored both deep in the earth and high above the heaven. Nothing seems impossible. The greater the challenge, the more they're interested. This can be dangerous if they take on too much before they're old enough to handle it. Earthly failure can cause a lack of trust in their own ability. Aquarius trees have a love of freedom and a fear of commitment and desire to be the boss. They run their own businesses or work independently. They have the ability to influence and make others see their point of view. They might be gurus, super salesmen, actors, or inventors. They should remember that their mission is not to control others, but to help them become strong and secure in their own opinions. Lovely. I, I heard um, I heard something about wealth in there and and got got excited. So uh, oh, yeah, when it went, it was going downhill. Um, it's interesting how those things are. Yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe in astrology, yeah, yeah. science, stuff like that. But you read that out, and I'm like, there's certainly some um, some parallels there between maybe what goes on in my head and, and what's <laughs> what's written, and very interesting. Well, it very sounds like you're supposed to uh, you're supposed to go with your with your gut and be be uh, be the person you want to be. So manifest that in your yeah, sure. uh, your direction. You certainly, obviously, have taken on a, a sense of what you're true affinity is and you're going after it so what what is kind of your your performance mission because i know you're trying to sort of spread the 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 language of this area of expertise and what would you like to see happen in in the industry around that yeah so you know i'm I'm kind of making some of those some of those moves at the moment like a lot of my i guess my skill set and a lot of my interest is somewhat education related one because of the change of direction agility side of things is just done very very poorly in a lot of a lot of senses and two because i've seen the inner workings of higher education i've seen the inner workings of professional development and i've been through the early career practitioner in a super saturated field and then kind of have ended up flipping it um the big thing for me at the moment i've actually just recently kind of transition role so my, my role with bristol flyers basketball is new um i'm basically now going to be um, part-time basketball part-time higher education running a master's program and then part-time trying to build and and run strength coach curriculums which is which is really going to try and be a platform to just really step up professional development and education you'll notice talking to me and a lot of the conversations we've had have been problem solving nuance um context related factors it's not that simple um taking first principles and using them to actually really try and enhance your day-to-day practice and i i don't see very much around for the early career practitioner that facilitates that i i see mm-hmm. lots of simplified answers right and wrongs um passively consumed just information more and more information versus okay you know let's actually get you to put this in place and really try and use this effectively um because perspectives change situations are different and, and contexts are, are pretty variable and that's really what what that you know the, the the strength coach curriculum side of things is all about taking my education skills problem solving professional um expertise and then trying to put them put them together um the first thing is going to be um an agility change of direction course which i'm going to have done depending on when everybody listens to this kind of october 2021 and it's going to kind of expand hopefully from from there which i'm really excited about but really looking at hoping to 
provide value that way as long as continue to try and bang the door of innovation within um within the university system and yeah keep coaching and uh yeah looking forward to getting involved with with basketball in more detail that's awesome well i i've enjoyed the hour spent with you it's uh, kind of cool to see. i love unpacking how people come to their thoughtful uh sensitivities in their their what they're passionate about and you would definitely express that so thank you for taking the time where can people find you if they want to take your course at some future point or want to get in touch with you yeah, sure. Easiest is I'm rich underscore agility lab on Twitter. I'm mainly active on, on Twitter. I'm not an Instagram user at, at this point in time. And that's certainly the easiest way to, to get hold of me. And then, you know, go from email to there or find the, find the strength coach curriculums website and kind of explore things that way. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time today, Rich. It's been a pleasure. Oh, good. No problems. Thanks very much for the invite. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.